Cool. The rest of you can grab your Bibles, open to the book of Revelation. You're going to open to chapter 2, not 1, which sounds weird. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to cover the over the next uh, seven weeks the seven letters to the seven churches found in the book of Revelation. We're not really going to go beyond that. Uh, I know that bums some of you out. Uh, but really, the whole point of this is that we want to do a series on the church to tighten up uh, to calibrate, to examine ourselves against the Word of God to see how we're doing right now because times are changing, uh, not just out there, but also inside the church, things are changing. The way that people are thinking are uh, is changing. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're still pleasing Jesus, that we're running on the right rails um, with everything that's going on in the midst of everything that's going on. And we really thought this is the best place to do it. Because these letters are, are uh, super cut and dry. Uh, the first cool thing about them is that uh, Jesus is actually the one doing the, the dictating of the letters. Um, now, I know that's semantics because it's all scriptures God breathed. And so we know that even though there's 66 books with over 40 different authors in the Bible, there's one author. Right. But um, it's kind of cool to hear Jesus put these things into his words as he would speak to the church. Um, but there's cut and dry stuff here. I mean, we're going to get what he likes and what he doesn't like. So these are basically report cards um, to the church. And, um, and, and, and the thought is always, which the pastors ask themselves every once in a while, like if Jesus was to write a letter to the door, uh, what would it say? And um, we, we, we like to assume that it would just be all a bunch of A's, all the way down, the, like A pluses. Um, but, but a lot of times we, um, we're very limited with what we can see and how we actually think we're doing. And so what's rad is that we get to see how we're doing through these letters. These letters are for us. You'll notice a pattern, a definite pattern in these letters. And one of those patterns is when you come to the end of each letter, it ends with uh, he who has an ear, which is all of us. You can grab it, touch it if you want to. You got one. Uh, so that means it's for us. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So even though these were seven real churches at the time with specific um, uh, letters written to them, specific information that was pertinent directly to those churches, they were meant to be read in every church, including this one a couple thousand years later. Uh, and so what we want to do is just evaluate ourselves and see how we're doing uh, through these letters. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Dig in a little bit, because this is going to be slightly longer than you're used to, like a 30 or 35-minute message. I told these guys when we, like... When we decided to do this, I'm like, there's no way that I can pull a letter off in like 35 minutes. Like, it can't be done. Like, can we go like multiple weeks on these? And it wouldn't have worked logistically with like moving around and rotating and stuff. So we're, we're stuffing a letter into each week. You will see the Super Bowl. We're not going to go that long. So uh, is that that is today, right? So don't worry about that. We'll get you out of here. But um, it, it might be a, it might be a slight bit longer than usual. Let's go ahead and uh, read the text. Oh, one more thing. Um, there's an introduction to these letters that because of time constraints on a Sunday morning, we did at Table Talk on a Thursday morning. So if you go back two weeks, um, I think it was two weeks ago, to, to that, that Table Talk, you can watch it on YouTube or whatever, you'll get the intro that all three pastors did for what you're about to get into. All right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus... Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so in these letters, we're going to see um, a definite framework. There's a, there's, a, there's a definite pattern in the way each letter is written, and they're basically uh, broken into three parts, okay? It, they all start with the qualification of the author, right? They all start with imagery, um, with Jesus speaking, giving reasons through titles, through imagery, as to why he has the right to say the things that he's about to say. The second part of the letter is the body, which is the evaluation of the church. So we have the qualification of the author followed by the evaluation of the church. This is the actual report card part. All right. And then all of them uh, are, are capped off or punctuated or finalized with what we will call the prize or the reward to the overcomer. Those are the three sections that all seven of these letters follow or the three uh, patterns. I'm sorry, the qualification, the evaluation and the prize. All right. So um, the first thing we have to do before we get into this is we have to speak to probably one of the biggest characters of this letter and figure out who this is. And that is Ephesus. Um, if we don't find out some stuff about Ephesus, then uh, we're going to be lost with some of the language that Jesus uses, because Jesus isn't just throwing out um, random Words, things that sound cute, like, oh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll say this this time and I'll say this to this church. No, you'll find as you go through these letters that everything has a very personal meaning in these letters. And if we don't catch that, if we don't catch the history and the personal meaning behind these, then we'll, we won't get half of what we're supposed to get out of here. All right. So let's talk first to Ephesus. Where was this place? What was it like? Ephesus. Actually, all seven of these churches Jesus is going to address existed in what's modern-day Turkey, not far from each other in the Mediterranean. So if you looked at a map and you found Turkey and you found the borders of Turkey, all seven of these churches would have fit in pretty close proximity inside those borders. All right? Um, if my wife, we've talked a lot, we... We, you know, have these discussions of where would we go? Because we've never been outside the states together. Like, where would we go? And we have these fun discussions about these places. But the top, I think the top of our list, if we could go anywhere, would be the Mediterranean. It would be over here, uh, Turkey, these areas where we could actually trace the missionary journeys of Paul would be like the raddest thing in the world to us. Like, because there's, there's still so much there. There's still so many ruins um, there's still so much to see. Like it, it comes to life still, uh, even today. And so I, I think I, I think we'd go over there. Um, at the time, the region was known as Asia Minor. Uh, the name Ephesus means darling, and it was a jewel. It was a jewel of a city. It was 
a standout city. It was standout in its architecture. It was standout in its population. And it was standout in its idolatry. It was world class, like we might look at Beijing or New York today. It was big. It was posh. It was swanky. It was cosmopolitan. It was cutting edge. It was trend setting. And it was wicked. It was really evil. There were 14 major temples to idols erected and booming at the time of John, all centering around the greatest of them, the Temple of Artemis, a.k.a. Diana. You guys heard of this lady? It was so great and it was so grand that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world at that time, that temple. And its existence and its popularity was all the result of its worship, which was basically sex. Therefore, it consisted of long parties and orgies and sacrifices to her. And these were the primary people group that Christians were up against. This was the primary people group that Christians were trying to win. Imagine how hard that would have been had you not had a proper gospel mindset. Because these people's lives revolved around blatant wickedness. And I know how easy it is for us to get as Christians to, to, to be tired of tolerating and striving with and chasing after and trying to win people that are just so contrary to righteousness and truth that a lot of times we just go, you know what, forget it. For, they're actually, they actually deserve what they have coming. I would have probably done this with these kind of people. Like that, that's how bad their lifestyle would have been that you were seeing day in and day out. I mean, the challenge for the Christian church in Ephesus uh, would have been not, not only not becoming like them, but, but loving them to Jesus. How would you have done? It gives a little more life to the words that we find Paul writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, put on the whole armor of God, right? Suit up, because your enemy Satan, not the people. The people are not your enemy. Satan's your enemy. So suit up with your spiritual armor. Think spiritually. Fight the right battle, not the wrong battle. Right? Gives it some meaning when you think about him writing that to him. The primary place that the church would have made their gospel stand day in and day out in Ephesus was a place called the Agora, which is a huge marketplace in the center of town where citizens and people from all parts of the world were found. The catch was that in order to enter the Agora on good terms each day, you had to pay homage to the emperor by dropping incense into the burn pot at the entrance to the marketplace. If you did not do that, it was noted. If you did not do that, you were marked. You were known as a problem. And it, it made it really difficult to do life in that city. You had to pay your respects, your honor, your loyalty to the Lord of the city, which would have been at this time Domitian. How would you do with that if that's the way we live today? Apparently they did well in spite of these obstacles and challenges because Luke records in Acts chapter 19 concerning Paul and the church in Ephesus that the authorities had both, quote, seen and heard their words and that they had persuaded and turned away a great number of people. In other words, the church in Ephesus was maybe the most effective church that we have recorded in our Bibles in spite of the thumb that was on them. 
the things they had to do, the hoops they had to jump through to be Christian. And it would have been this Domitian who'd have been responsible for banishing John to the island of Patmos to die a slow and miserable death in solitude, which Patmos is about 50 miles off the coast of Ephesus. It's not like a tropical, um, it's not like Hawaii, bro. Thomas just came back from Hawaii. It wouldn't have been like that. Like it, it would have been like a rock with some uh, like flies, you know, like you, you, you would go there to die. You probably wouldn't find a coconut, you know. Considering all this, how bad do you think John and the church needed to see and hear this vision from Jesus when he brought it? Right? How bad do you think John needed to hear these words from his Lord? Because he must have been thinking, and the church must have been thinking at this point when this, this letter was given, um, all is lost. Christianity is lost. Rome is strong. The government is powerful. They have control over everything. And they have scattered us to the wind to die. They have ruined us. Considering the context that they lived in in that day, their earthly reality, we're able to gain a proper perspective and appreciation for the necessity of these letters right here being given to John and these churches. We can only imagine how tough it would have been for the Christian church to navigate all of this. They needed these words. They needed these letters. They needed to know that Jesus knew what they were going through. They needed to know that He had not left them or abandoned them or forsaken them because all they saw and all they were tempted by and reinforced with was a godless world where evil prevailed. Does that sound right? John needed this vision as he lie in the scorching sun, abandoned to die. He needed to write and hear once more the words from chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. This is what this entire letter is about. I know it's got all kinds of interesting things in it that we like to go to and try to like crack the codes and like put the riddles together in the book of Revelation, right? But, but here, here's what the book is about. It's actually found in chapter one. I think it's verse seven. Four words. Behold, I am coming. I am coming. You and I need to know that. Jesus is coming. No matter how dark it looks and how sideways everything is getting, Jesus is coming. John needed that. He needed to hear that. The church needed to hear that. Behold, I'm coming. That's not the only thing he needed to hear. Because further on in that verse, God goes on to say, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The ruler of the kings on earth. Do you guys believe that today about your Lord? Like, like John needed to hear again, no, 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 it's not Domitian that holds all the cards. It, it looks like it, but, it, but it's actually Jesus who holds the cards. Like Domitian's fully, completely at the mercy of Jesus. He can do nothing apart from Jesus. Jesus is sovereign, he's powerful, he's in control still. Even though everything was seemed out of control, 
fully sovereign, fully reigning, fully in power, fully ruling over all the kings of the earth. Even though it hardly felt like it at the time for these guys. The church needed this. John needed to hear this. They needed this vision as they were continually pushed to the margins of society, finding themselves swimming upstream against the accepted secular norms of a wicked and a perverse worldview. And brothers and sisters, you and I do too. I want you to realize this with me. There is something that is so clear when you read your Bible. And that is the church belongs in the margin, not in the center of the page. We are so spoiled in this country that we have no idea that that's where the church belongs. For 250 years, the church has been popular. We've been everybody's friend. And we've been accepted in the center of the page. And this is what excites me so much about what's going on right now. Is the church in America is actually going to move from where it, sh- it doesn't belong to where it does belong. We actually get to go to the margin. That's not bad. That's good. That's where you and I need to make our bed is in the margin. We are counterculture. You guys realize that? We are punk rock. We are backwards to everything in this world that's going on. And yet we like it when we're accepted and we look just like them. And everybody pats us on the back and says, I like the church. You know what's going to happen when we make our bed in the margin again, when we get there? The gospel is going to be strong again. It's going to actually matter again. We're going to have a voice again. The the church is going to be effective again. We're going to be powerful again. The kingdom of God will be known and heard about again when we get to the margins. This church knew how to do that well. These guys were in the margins, right where they were supposed to be, and... People were coming to Jesus. Against all odds, they're coming to Jesus. Be, be a little, maybe not as excited as me, but be a little bit excited about what's happening to the church right now. Like it's not, it's not all bad. It's okay. We're right where God wants us. Alright, we need to start the actual letter now. So, um, verse 1, qualification of the author. Jesus gives us here a couple of reasons through powerful imagery as to why he's qualified to say the things he's about to say. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what are these things? right? Well, as cryptic and as mysterious as they may sound, they're one of the things, praise God, in the book of Revelation that we don't have to guess at. Because if we peek back to the end of chapter 1, right before this letter starts, Jesus tells us what they are, right? He says back there, chapter 1, verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That helps. I love it when Revelation clears things up. Seven stars, seven angels. Angels means messengers. That's all it means. In the Greek, it means messengers. So what we have to do is we actually have to pay attention to the context whenever that word is used 
to determine whether we're talking celestial or human. Now, I know that this is debated, um, and, I, and I'm not going to go into this because we don't have time to go into this, um, but I don't go with the celestial thing here because there's, there's nothing else in Scripture that would even hint at the fact that each church has its special angel that does these things. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that we can't build a doctrine on it, so it would be kind of a foreign uh, thing to try to connect. What we do know is that it does have messengers that are responsible um, to bring the church things like this, that, that actually are responsible to to build DNA into the church um, that is right. Um, and so I'm going I'm to go with human messengers. I'm going to go with even uh, like bishops, pastors, overseers, elders in this case of those churches. Um, and again, you can go home and have, have fun with that on your own time. The seven golden lampstands, they're the churches he's writing to, uh, pure and simple. So right up front, those mysteries are solved. However... When it comes to the seven stars that Jesus is holding, there may have been a more personal secondary meaning for John and the church in Ephesus. Because in AD 83, the emperor Domitian lost his son. And Domitian actually lived. Okay, He wasn't just emperor of that region of, of Rome at the time. He lived in Ephesus. He actually had a palace on a hill with a 50-foot statue. It was the highest point in Ephesus. So that he could look down on everybody that he owns... And they could look up to know who's boss, right? And out front of that palace, he had a 50-foot statue that Christians or anybody, when they would walk outside every single day, would see, knowing, okay, that's, that's, that's our Lord, right? That's who this guy was living at the time. In AD 83, that dude lost an infant son. And so what Domitian decided to do is have a coin made, which showed his son sitting on top of the globe, and surrounding the head of his son was seven stars. This would have been a normal coin that these guys would walk around with, and they would see that every time they looked at it. And because of this, it is very likely that this imagery was intentional on Jesus' part to tell John and the church, in effect, this dude, Domitian, that's been basically one of the most brutal persecutors of you guys, thinks he holds the power in his hand, but soon he will know that I do. Soon he will know that it is I, the Son of the Most High God, that sits over the globe in power, not the Son of Domitian. Interesting to consider. Whatever the full intention of Jesus may have been, what we do know for sure in what's being communicated here is that Jesus is the head of the church. Amen? Jesus is the head of the church. That's what he's saying. That never ceases to hold the ministers in his right hand and never ceases to walk in the midst of the church on earth. The vision assures us that he continues to have full power, full authority, full ownership over all of it. Even this right here. All of it. And not only does he have full power and ownership, but he's actively observing, evaluating, making adjustments to that which he owns. In other words, Jesus is not detached from what his church is doing here on earth. He's not at the right hand of God with a curtain. And I think it's easy for us to, to maybe go that direction sometimes in our own minds with Jesus because of some of the other imagery that's given to us in the Word of God. Some of the things that he said, I must go and prepare a place. I must go. I must go. I'm going to send the Spirit. Spirit can't come unless I go. Right? He's ascended to the right hand of God. Like somehow all, all, all that he's doing now is taking our prayers and getting them to the Father, right? Um, and, and it's true that he's doing that, but he's there and here. 
He's omnipresent. He's here. In fact, the church is otherwise known as what? The body of Christ. Bodies do not function without a head. Who is the head? Jesus. The church on earth right now is not walking around with its head cut off. We would have no power, no effectiveness, no nothing. Jesus is very much present in the body of his church. He is the head of his church. We need him. And he, and he very much knows what's going on here. And I think that's helpful for us as we interact with each other and do life with each other inside the church to know that Jesus sees all of it. He's watching all of it. He's not, he's not vacationing. He's here. He very much cares about what we do and how we do it. Very much so. Right? And, and, and I believe that, um, that this imagery here in the opening of the letter, um, makes that, makes that pretty clear. He, he sees, he knows, he cares about what we're doing, how we're doing it, which brings us to the body of the letter, the evaluation of the church, verses two through six, which we, begins with, I know your works. That could be an exciting statement, uh, and it could be a terrifying statement. Uh, maybe, maybe both. Um, he's saying, I see you. I'm well aware of your works. I'm well acquainted with them. And, it, and if this is true, he, he knows what we're about here. He, he knows what we're about at the door. He knows what we've been through. He knows where we've come from. He knows where we're going. He knows where our heart is. He knows what our intentions are, both the obvious ones and the hidden ones. He knows our challenges, our victories, our triumphs, our defects. And as much as the, as the thought of it scares me, like I said earlier, I, I would just love sometimes if he actually um, just cut through the suspense and sent me like an annual report or something. Like that would be helpful, I think. But but bottom line is, is, is like I said, he, he has. It, it is these seven letters. This is our report. It's up to us to honestly evaluate ourselves by these and then be, be honest about what needs to be done. He says, I know your works. Your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. These are good words to hear from Jesus. These are really good words. Um, that they haven't sold out is awesome. That they haven't sold out, that they haven't compromised in becoming like those around them. How are we doing with that? That they weren't being influenced by the rampant sinfulness of the world that they lived in is good. It seems that they never started being attracted to the sin of the world, though they were continually around it. Continually around it. And I, I want to say this right now. I don't want to make anybody mad. But if there's ever this, this inkling that you have as a Christian to, to, uh, to sail far away, uh, to a land and huddle with a few people that think like you and are like you, that that's the answer, that's so not Christian. You can't do mission that way. You can't share the gospel to people who need it that way. I know there's a lot of talk about right, right now about going to a certain state because everybody there is a little more like you. Well, that's neat and all, but we have a super small window to pull people out of hell. And you can't do it when everybody that you surround yourself with is just like you. You know what I'm saying? Separatistic thinking, isolating, is not Christian. In any way. And it seems like these guys didn't do that. Like, like they stood their ground. They planted their feet 
in this wicked place. And they said, I'm not moving. Like, I'll take, what, I'll take whatever you dish out. But the gospel's going forward. That's Christianity. Rest of verse 2 and 3, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So here we see Jesus starting off their evaluation by throwing them a bouquet. Right? He's opening up with an encouragement, an attaboy, rather than a failure. He's softening them up because he is going to hit them here pretty soon. But um, he's, he's, he's basically commending them that they're protectors and crusaders of doctrine, protectors and crusaders of, of truth. And we see here that there were false teachers then, just like there are false teachers now. Nothing new. It's not, a, it's not some new deal. There were false teachers then that needed to be identified and rejected. As long as the church and its doctrines have existed, the counterfeits have existed right alongside it. You can look at just about every single epistle in the New Testament and see the evidence for that. And it will always be this way until Jesus comes back and exterminates the counterfeits. It will be this way until Jesus comes back and drains the swamp. One of the primary jobs of the truth, the true church, while on earth, is to protect the truth. Not a truth according to us and what we agree with, but His truth. This is a mark of the true church and a true leader and a true teacher in the church is that He protects truth. He proclaims truth. And this, as loose as we may seem in areas at the door, is the foundation of the door. I know a lot of people don't don't think so when they come in or, or they see it or they see the sign or the colors or whatever. They're like, like what are you guys? I, I get to ask this all the time. Like what, are, like, what are you guys? Are you a cult? Are you like a nightclub? Are you like, you know what I mean? Like, like what are you doing? You know? And, and, it's, and, and, and the only way that I know how to explain it uh, to people is we're a Bible-believing, Christ-proclaiming community. That says basically that, that's the door right there. Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming. That's what we are. This is one of our primary functions and goals here, to protect, promote, and proclaim God's truth, and not just the parts that we like. There's a lot of stuff in here I don't get down with. You know what I'm saying? If I'm to be honest with you, there's just stuff I don't dig here. I don't understand it. I don't like it. It's not agreeable to me in the flesh. Like, there's hard stuff in this book, but I believe every single last ounce of it. Because I believe the author. And I, and I believe that he is truth. And I'm not. We, we cannot trust ourselves that way. The, 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 the Word of God is not here for us to come and scrutinize it. It scrutinizes us. And we need to remember that. This is the plumb line. These guys um, didn't sell out. They were about doctrine. They're about upholding truth, and Jesus likes this. On that note, of what Jesus is commending them for, let's just keep on with the commending before we get to the other subjects. If we let our eyes jump ahead to verse 6, we see this group mentioned called the Nicolaitans. They were a sect of Christians that had adopted and mingled much of the Greek philosophies of the time. 
which is that they heavily employed Gnosticism, which resulted in antinomianism. Now, those are two big ism words. Gnosticism, meaning that the body, basically, is insignificant to God. He just doesn't care about it. And if he doesn't care about the body, then guess what follows? Doing all kinds of stuff to the body and in the body that God wouldn't approve of. That's antinomianism. God doesn't care about this. And by the way, even if he did, he saved me by grace. So doesn't really matter. That's antinomianism, right? Justifying things and living in ways that God is opposed to as if they're insignificant to God when they're not. And as a result, the Nicolaitans' brand of truth became a perverted partial truth, with that, which actually equates to an untruth. But the Ephesian church didn't play that game. They didn't buy it, and Jesus commends them for it. The Ephesians called it what it was and hated it for what it was, and so does Jesus. And it is at this point that I wish that we could go to the outro of the book, to the letter, and close it. But we can't. Because the report card on other subjects that need to be graded. And so if we go back to verse 4, we find the next one. But I have this against you. I have this against you. And I mean this with all sincerity, that I hope that these are words that I'll never have to hear from my Lord. I don't want to hear this. It's a horrible phrase to hear from Jesus. I have this against you. From what I know um, of me and your other two pastors, and I know your other two pastors pretty darn well, like we do life together. I've known them for years, and not just in ways when we're on the clock, like doing pastor things, like we do life together. And these pastors that God has given you at this church, I need you to know, are the real deal. None of them are here to get rich, to make a name for themselves, to pump up their pride and their ego, to get a book deal, to get a call to speak at a conference. Nobody pastoring this church cares about any of these things. All we care about is bringing glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. I promise you. That's what you have here. Jesus says, I have this against you. Thank you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What do you think that was? What do you think that was? I have a question. Is the church to you like a habit? A duty? A project? A chore? I'm going to make a super risky statement right now. That'll probably get me some emails and get me in trouble. I fear that so much of the decline that the church has seen in attendance during COVID times, for many, not all, has very little to do with COVID. For some, it does. A lot of it's legitimate, too. I I praise God for some of the precautions that people are taking. It seems that there's a reason now that's noble 
that's a noble excuse to not be in the middle of the church. I know that I know that sucks. I know that's a horrible statement, but I can't help it. I can't help what I see. It's become a duty. It's become a tiring project, dare I even say a burden to people to strive with their brothers and sisters in Christ. But this applies to many of us who still show up, too. Do you find yourself going through the motions of serving Jesus and others because you just have the need to be faithful? Or is it because it's your joy? It's your passion? It's your everything? Is Jesus your everything? Do you find yourself doing church for a reason other than because you love Jesus? And I'll bite. I have. Many times. I've stood up here many times in that state. There have been many seasons of ministry for me, not just Christianity, but ministry, where I had no joy. And so you know what my answer is? To do more, try harder, until I recover it. And it doesn't work that way, so the joy doesn't come, and then I I get mad at him. What's up? Why aren't you holding up your end of the deal? You said that if I come follow you, like things are going to be hard, but your burden's light. Like I'm going to have unspeakable joy even in my trials and tribulations. I'm going to have a peace that passes understanding. There's going to be this deal, this life abundant that comes from you even when all everything fails and everything's lost. So where is it? I'm doing my deal. Why aren't you doing yours? And the problem is that I wander. Listen to me. God does not wander. You wander. God doesn't go anywhere. Jesus is where He's always been, doing what He's always done. But you and I take detours. We go on strolls. And then we go, what's up, dude? Like, how come things have stopped? And it's because we've gone away. We've gone away from the thing that amazed us in the beginning, which is Him and who He is and what He's done. And no amount of work or striving or doing can reset that because that's not where we got it in the first place. Not by works we have done, but by His grace through faith we have been given life. We have been loved. People who are unlovable received love by just seeing Him and throwing ourselves on Him. It seems that this fits with what was going on with these guys. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus longs for the relationship above all else, not the behavior. Above all else, He desires the relationship. Because the behavior alone has real, really no effectiveness. Jesus clearly teaches us this principle when He goes to Mary and Martha's house for coffee and scones. Do you remember that story? And what does He say? How does he conclude the lesson? Because he wanted fellowship. He went there that day to have fellowship with two women. And he, and he ended up leaving only having fellowship with one. And he didn't dig it. 
Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, listen to this, which will not be taken from her. Which will not be taken from her. In in other words, Martha, though she was in the kitchen doing a nice act, performed a lost act. One that, that didn't remain, that wasn't capable of remaining. But Mary, in being enamored with the person in the presence of Jesus, performed an act that would remain and endure, which is falling more and more in love with Jesus. More and more. It says there in Luke 10.39 that while Martha was running around stressed and obsessed with behavior and duty, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching, absorbing, observing, worshiping, worshiping. See, Christianity is not so much about what we can do for Him as it is becoming more and more obsessed and amazed with what He has done for us. And when we remain in this this obsession with Him, we're then propelled to go and to do things rightly with power, purpose, effectiveness. It's not the other way around. These guys forgot that in Ephesus. They left it. They remained faithful to good doctrine and faithful to call out others who failed to have it, but they became unfaithful in the love which they should have for the one which they were doing it for. They were excellent whistleblowers, but less than impressive lovers of God and men. Any of you know these people? God, I hope we never become that way here at this church. Were they really good at whistleblowing? Oh, that's not right. Oh, that's not scriptural. Oh, that... But but they have like no they have no love. We need both. We need the chocolate and the peanut butter. We need we need both. We need to be people who speak truth because Jesus likes it. He loves when we protect doctrine and truth, but we need to never lose the motivator. Love. Love. In fact, this John in his epistle, first John, says that's the mark. Of a Christian. That's the mark of the church of God is this love. We can be, we can become so concerned with being right. I have done this so many times in my life. I'll be the first one to admit. We can be so concerned with being right that we can end up being wrong by the way that we do it. Cynical. Cold. Hard towards God and towards others. We need to be careful. Very careful. So so now what is the question? What should they do? Verse 5, Remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Three things are given here. Remember, repent, reactivate. See what I did there? Try to make it cute for you. Three R's so you'd remember it better. Remember, repent, reactivate. Or what? Or what? Or I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Turn or burn, baby. No, that's not what he's saying. These people, these guys are saved. Like turn or I'll turn the light out, basically. <laughs> that's what he's saying. In a very real sense, Jesus is saying, if you don't course correct, you're better off out of the world than you are in it for me. Does that sound heavy? It seems a bit harsh, but think about it. If someone's mis- if somebody's representation of you is a misrepresentation, 
Isn't it reasonable to want to shut it down? It is to me. Isn't it reasonable to want to turn it off? I don't want you to miss the good news in this negative evaluation because there is good news in it. You ready? That is the existence of an invitation for them to repent. This is what Paul came up and talked about on the microphone this morning. They are invited to turn around. They are invited to course correct. That God does not just perform what would be right and true and just according to what they've already done, but he doesn't want to. He would rather see this happen first. He's inviting them back out of error into non-error. How many of you need that? I need it every day. I need need God to give me that kind of patience. I need him to handle me with with those kind of kid gloves every day. Because I'm like constantly offending him in word, thought, or deed. And and, and and it's, it's so natural to me. It's so, it's so normal, it's so default that I don't even know when I'm doing it. And he has every right to be offended by every bit of my offense. And, 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 and yet he waits. And then he, he waves me in. Come back. Just come back. You don't, you don't need to be doing that. You don't need to be living that way. Come back. Man, how good is he to us? He's doing that to these guys. See, Jesus doesn't want to throw them away. That's not his first preference. His preference isn't to take their lampstand out to the trash can. He's inviting them to come out of their error. And he's not doing it by saying, do better, try harder. He's doing it by inviting them back to that which won them over in the first place. To be fascinated with, amazed by, and head over heels for Jesus again. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what it was like when you met Jesus? I have to consider this once in a while because for me, it's, so, it's like so many things in my life where um, you would wait all year as a kid for that present, for Christmas to come around so that you could get that present. And then Christmas comes around and that present comes and you look at it for like four or five days and then you don't look at it again. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're, we're constantly um, unimpressed quickly with things. Therefore, we we constantly need to surround ourselves with and be intentional about things that will keep us impressed. We can't afford to do that with Jesus. He's not a Christmas present that we lose interest in after a few days, right? I remember going back to those days when I first met Jesus. I knew that, that my life would never be the same again. I knew that things had forever changed. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know how to articulate them. I didn't have good doctrine. I didn't know any kind of theology. All I knew is that I was, I was lost and now I was found. All I knew is that I had just received something that I never should have received. I knew that I was loved. Somehow I knew that I was all of a sudden loved by someone in a way that nobody else is capable of loving me. I knew that Satan had none of that stuff on me anymore. None of that stuff. That stuff that I I am well aware of. That I know that I have done. Those things that you say, God will never forgive me for this. I I knew that Satan 
didn't have those things on, on me anymore. I knew that if God was for me, who could be against me? I knew that things were different. And there was, there was something lighter. The world was lighter. <laughs> I was lighter. I got out of bed every day different. Why? Because I was baptized in the love of Jesus. And because of his love being revealed to me, I wanted to love him back. Nothing else mattered. And this is what we're talking about. This, this is what you and I have to fight to preserve. Is that there is nothing greater than Jesus in this world. It will continually tell us every day, this thing will make you happy. Try this. That's different. Uh, It's foisted on us from every direction, and we like it. We entertain it. We listen to it. But we need to know at all times, it's a lie. There is nothing new under the sun, guys. Nothing satisfies the soul of a sinner more than Jesus Christ, ever. And when we know that, we are effective in this world, and we are powerful in what we go forth to do in his name. There is strength in the name of Christ. And that strength comes from being loved by him and loving him. Ministry becomes fun again. Serving and pouring out becomes fun again. There's a joy again that's restored. Why? Because that love thing's restored. How are we doing with that? Because, I mean, we're exhausted. We've seen some ups and downs. We've been going 10 years strong I know this has been a tough season. I know it's a challenge. You know, what's cool is that's, that's one of the things that people say when, when people visit from wherever it is they come from and they walk in here. That's the first thing they always say. They're, like, I sense a love in this room. that, Like, I go into a lot of churches. They'll, they'll say, like, I sense a love here that's different. And praise God. Like, that's a rad thing to be known for, you know. That's pretty cool. All right, we're there. Outro. The prize, last part of the letter to the overcomer. Already spoke to verse 6, remember? Back in verse 2, so we're going to go to 7. He who has an ear, we all have one. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, it just so happens that in one of the outer courtyards to the temple of Artemis, there stood a giant tree. And this tree symbolized life. After all, Artemis was the goddess of fertility and life. And women, hoping to become pregnant, would come from all over in hopes to touch this tree. And people who wanted a more abundant life and health and wealth would come from all over the world to touch this tree. In other words, this tree in the courtyard of Diana's temple was a source of hope and the fullness of life for the Ephesians and the pagan world. Of course, Christians may have felt cheated in that, that they wouldn't go into this courtyard and touch this tree. They may have felt left out even of one of the great opportunities of of living in Ephesus. But Jesus wants them to know that if if they overcome... Tried to do endure and overcome at the same time. Didn't work. Tried to invent a new word. Didn't work. Jesus wants them to know that if they endure with him till the end, if they overcome, they will not in any way be left out. 
He wants them to know that if they endure with Him till the end, He will give them access to the true tree. To the real tree that is in the garden of God. The eternal tree of life. Some of us have been looking to, desiring, laboring over a false tree for a long time. Every nation and every culture that's ever existed has had at least one of these in the midst of it. And some of us are being challenged right now because that tree here in America is burning. It's withering. And I want you to know this morning that it's the wrong tree. It is not the tree you're looking for. That tree that we all long for and truly desire is only found in the garden of God, not America. It is not here. It's in the paradise of God, which is not yet, but soon will be to all who endure and remain faithful till the end. We are looking for His kingdom. The Roman emperors were known for their extravagant gardens. And the common people would only hope to ever get a glimpse inside one of them, but most people never would. They were a thing of legend. They were referred to as the emperor's paradiso, which is where we get the word paradise. So consider once again what this language and imagery from Jesus would have meant to John and to the church who were brutally persecuted by these emperors with these paradises they would never be invited into. These guys who never stood a chance at glimpsing the inside of one. To hear that the day was going to come when they were going to be invited into the paradise of God to touch the tree. To eat from it. In other words, it will all be worth it for them and everything that they've gone through. And brothers and sisters, one day it will be worth it for us and everything that we've gone through when God invites us into his garden to touch the tree. Jesus says in Matthew 5.12, for those of you who endure till the end for my name's sake, great is your reward in heaven. Do you believe that? Lord, thank you for uh, this letter. Thank you for the Ephesian church going ahead of us, uh, showing us what to do, showing us what not to do. Thank you that, um, that these letters are applicable to us. They are even personal to us, God. Help us to be humble as we lay ourselves open next to it. God, give us the strength and the courage to make the adjustments that we need to make to see straight, to see clearly the things that need to go, the things that don't honor you, and the things that do. Please give us that discernment, Lord. We thank you that no matter what's happening right now in this world around us, that we know that you are the king and the ruler of the rulers on earth and that you are coming again to set everything straight. May that give us courage, God, strength, motivate us in our current times of trouble and uncertainty. And we ask it in your name. Amen.